0: So, I don't know if you, when you look at this story, these people were seriously nuts, weren't they? Like, think about it. Look, just look at the bit here at the end, which I love. He says, I don't have time to go into it all. Um... But uh, look at these people. They were, they were tortured, verse 35. They were tortured, refused to be released, so they might gain an even better res- resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were put, they were put to death by stoning. They were soared in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, uh, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And they did it all. Why? For their faith in Jesus. That's just nuts, right? Isn't it? That's seriously bonkers. When you think about us, or let me mean, when I think about me, and I look at the way I live, it's actually not that different from the way people who don't have faith in Jesus live. And the profoundly challenging question for me is, could I do this? Which is quickly followed by another question. Should I do this? Like, is this really meant to be a picture of what a life of faith looks like? Because um, let's expect a much smaller church, if that is the case. Or maybe not. What is the thing... What's the only thing that would cause these life choices to not be completely bonkers and mad and nuts? What's the only thing that would make them not nuts? Jesus? Yeah? What about Jesus? Yeah? 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 Well, that that the claims of Christianity are true, right? Like, if the claims of Christianity are true, that makes perfect sense. If they're not, that is complete stupidity. Do you agree? So, the most important question we have to grapple with is, when it comes to thinking about faith, is are the claims of our faith true? Or put it another way, do we put our faith in, uh, in what actually is true about the world? Does our faith connect us to underlying reality? And uh, I think the reason many of us in the Western world, or in churches like ours, live lives that aren't that noticeably different sometimes, because I think sometimes, even though we may come to church, and we may do the whole religious thing. I think sometimes we don't really actually believe that there is a God. <laughs> we don't really believe it's true enough to live it out. And I speak entirely personally that faith, actually believing and living as though there is a God, is profoundly difficult in our environment. And so we're going to think long and hard about this um, now, I see at least one person here who's doing the IB, and those of you who've recently done the IB, this, this sermon tonight might feel a little bit like a theory of knowledge uh, lesson, so I apologize for that, Ollie. I know, isn't that exciting? Why, Oliver heard it this morning, and he deliberately stayed away tonight. He's like, yeah, I didn't understand theory of knowledge at school, I didn't understand it this morning, but I'm going to do my best to, to help us un- think about faith. Uh, And it might seem a little bit like a philosophy lecture because that's what it is. Uh, And what I want to make is four statements. I want to unpack four, and the first one is going to take the the, the longest. I want us to think about Christian faith as rational, hopeful, powerful, and personal. And think about how that works out. But the majority of our time is going to be thinking about the rationality or the reasonableness of our faith because we have to... If we are going to live the way that Hebrews 11 says, we have to believe that it's true and that we're not crazy. Okay, so uh, the rationality of faith. Uh, Here's some things that you need to understand if you're going to understand faith. Uh, Firstly, everyone has faith. We all live by faith. We can't live in the world without faith, can we? So, for example... um, You have faith that the sun will rise tomorrow. In a strict sense, there is no necessity, there is no logical necessity for the sun to rise tomorrow because past experience is no logical guarantee of future occurrence. So it's what in the philosophy of science is called the problem of inference. But we all live as though the sun is going to rise tomorrow because we all have faith that we live in a reliable universe, right? So, for example, you aren't here worrying at a a somewhat absurd level. You're not worrying that when you go home, your home will have turned into a giant mushroom. There's no reason at one level that it wouldn't have turned into a giant mushroom, right? Except that while you're here, you're not really worried about it. You're living as though when you go home, your home will still be there because that's the way it's always been, and you have faith that that is what will continue to happen. Uh, We live by faith in the area of relationships, don't we? that uh, how do I know that somebody loves me? Well, I, uh, for example, Margot, my wife, how do I know that Margot loves me? Well, she's not here. She's not physically present, but I have 23 years, actually a little more now, that's a bit scary, uh, 27 years of relating to her, uh, and a whole bunch of, of history and facts and data that I can look back on. But in the end, I've still got to trust i still got to trust that, she, that what she has done in time and space in the past is an indication of a state of her heart that, will, that is true now and will go on in the future. It's not some long-term, devious plot of a maniacal sociopath to delude me, right? That is a logical possibility. Uh, I just have faith that it's not uh, actually the way it is. Now, one of the biggest challenges to living a life of faith consciously as a believer in Christianity is the sheer presence of material reality. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, the material physical world is just literally in our faces. It's everywhere, isn't it? And so it can be very hard to realize that and to believe and to think and live as though the the non-material spiritual reality is as real as the chair you're sitting on. See, that's the claim of Christianity, that that the immaterial God whom we worship is as real and as close to you as the chair that you're sitting on. But of course, you have no problem believing in the chair. We have no problem believing in this world because it's so physically present. And we have to learn to uh, live with and see through the material reality now, saving faith means trusting in unseen realities, physical and spiritual, in the past, the present, and the future. Which is another way of saying that, uh, that it's really saving faith as a cr- in Christian terms is no different to, to the faith we exercise in any relationships, really. How do I know anything about, the hist- about history? Well, it's based on other people's testimonies, and so I, have, I believe it or I don't. Uh, And how do I know, for example, as we said, about love in the present? Well, it's based on faith. And uh, knowing what the future will hold is entirely based on faith. In Hebrews, saving faith is confidence and assurance that is a basis for living. So look how it's described, right? Faith uh, is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is, that, that faith, is, uh, faith has a certain robustness to it. It's not a wishy-washy superstition, according to Scripture, actually, and according to our lives. And, but faith, when it's placed in the world as it is, gives us great confidence that, in fact, the future will be what God says it will be. And it's so confident that that little word up there, assurance, actually comes from a legal background, and it's like you are assured of receiving an inheritance, right? There's a legal guarantee that you're going to get this thing. So uh, imagine your great-grandpa has died, or your grandmother, or if it chooses you better, imagine your parent has died, but let's not that could make us a bit sad, right? So imagine, imagine someone in your family has died, and they were very, very, very wealthy, and you're going to receive an enormous amount of money, um, and you have two crucial bits of information, two things you've seen that give you great assurance. What would they be? you've seen the will and what else the body <laughs> or the death certificate they really are dead and you've really seen the will and uh, and so you have great assurance like it's a legal certainty you are going to inherit all this money and then even if it's going to be a month or 6 months or a year away that changes how you live now because you go well i don't look i don't have to worry about the future i don't have to do this job or that job, I can just chill, because I know I have great assurance. And so the writer to Hebrews says, faith can function like that for us. If we understand it rightly, and if it does its proper job in our life, it gives us that level of assurance about the spiritual unseen realities that then form a basis for us to live lives of radical service, which we'll see in a moment. But here's an important point, which I'm sure you already know. Faith can be right and saving or wrong and damning, right? Um, Simple illustration. Have you ever trusted somebody who's really let you down? Well, that's really painful, right? You put your faith in the wrong person. Over 25 years of, you know, pastoral ministry, I've walked alongside lots of people who've put their faith in somebody, in a life partner, who has then let them down and violated their faith and profoundly betrayed them. And that is, that is a terrible reality when your faith is misplaced. Or a more simple reason, uh, a more simple uh, example, um, in Canada, where we live for some years, many people die in winter. Okay, so note to self, don't visit Canada in winter. Uh, actually, that's why Canadians are always so happy when you see them traveling. They're so happy because they're out of Canada. It's like, yes, it's awesome. Um, so, uh, but why do they die in Canada? It's, one of the reasons is, why do they die in winter? One of the reasons is, if you go driving in the middle of winter in Canada, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and it's, you know, 30 degrees below freezing, and your car runs out of gas, and you get stuck there, you freeze to death fairly quickly. Now, if you look at your, at your car and you go, I have faith that my car has a full tank of gas. I am believing for a full tank of gas. This is it. But your faith is misplaced. <laughs> and in fact, your gas tank is almost empty. Then that has enormously difficult consequences. Because faith is about understanding Uh, And living in the way the world really is, that there is a givenness to underlying reality. You see, sometimes what we think, faith is about believing anything you really want to believe, right? So knowledge is about the way the world really is. But faith, well, you can believe whatever you want to believe. It's It's a very personal thing. So I had a brilliant discussion this week. Uh, with a lady who just works across the road there. She's uh, an amazing woman, lives locally, runs uh, an uh, incredible... She's a force of nature. She's one of the most impressive human beings I've ever met. Uh, Honestly, she's uh, an investment banker, set up a corporate advisory business, and for 20 years has pioneered this model where she uses the millions of dollars that they've made as investment bankers to fund this development work uh, in, in Uganda, actually funding a mission hospital that the uncle of one of our morning service people started. 25 years ago, that's the connection, and then uh, neonatal care in Nepal. And using all this money, she's become, her group have become world leaders in the provision of neonatal care in remote areas of the world. And she's done it all through her networks in investment banking in Australia. That's how they funded this, and it's, it's extraordinary. So I'm talking to her, and we're telling stories, and he, she's, she used to be married to an Israeli guy. And so she's very interested that I my Jewish background and, and at one point talking about why we do what we do. And I said my life uh, is about trying to live, uh, live a life of truth where I actually live in, in step with the way the world really is. And I understand underlying reality and I help other people live lives of truth in keeping with underlying reality. Uh, which is the classic view of reality. So faith to work needs to p- connect me to the way the world really is. And she said, which was beautiful, and put so eloquently, she said, well, I prefer to think that I want to help people find their truths. Um, now, of course, what she really meant was in the unseen realm of God's stuff and spirituality, there's no underlying reality. Everyone can really just find what works for them. She doesn't live, apply that consistently because she says in the material world, she's evidence-based, like world-leading provision. They've, they've built and patented and are rolling out this way of uh, this little machine that can oxygenate Um, a premature baby's blood in remote areas where there's no electricity. I don't know how they do it. It's incredibly brilliant. So so the world, you can't just make your own truth when it comes to science and medicine, unless you're an anti-vaxxer, but that's another whole group of people, right? Um, In reality, you can't do that. There is a way the world works, and science helps us understand it. There's no reason at all. In fact, it's remarkably inconsistent to think, well, this world works this way, But in the non-visible world, it's entirely different. In fact, in the non-visible world, reality is indeterminate and you can make it up. It doesn't work that way. Faith misplaced in the material or the physical realm actually is very damaging. So what we believe about non-material spiritual realities matters. If you believe your car is full of gas and it isn't, you might die in a snowstorm. If you believe that somebody loves you, and is faithful to you, uh, and it turns out that they're a psychopath, uh, that could have very harmful uh, implications for you, misplaced belief in non-material reality. So what does that mean? Well, it means as followers of Jesus, we've got to really test the claims that Christianity makes about reality. We're making certain claims about the way the world really is, and we must never be afraid of testing our faith sometimes we we can feel really bad about that as christians can't we we can think well i just shouldn't i shouldn't doubt i shouldn't question i shouldn't think you go no no that's not right at all we as people of faith should think about these questions and grapple with them and wrestle with them more than anyone else because we're wanting to put build our lives on these claims so it's okay to think it's okay to question in fact it's really good so we've got to question these we've got to exp- uh, we've got to open our claims to um, scrutiny. But uh, the first thing as we start, not but, and the first thing we have to say as we start on this is right up front acknowledge that Chris, the claims of Christianity can't be proved by the scientific method. There is still this argument that is brought out. I don't know if you've had it with your friends who aren't yet followers of Jesus who go, well, prove, you can't prove Christianity to me. Of course, they don't apply that same standard of proof to almost any other area of life, um, particularly if they're anti-vaxxers. Um, but uh, and so, so actually, there's a bit of a, an anti scientistic response or scientism. But but listen, the scientific method won't prove Christianity. In fact. Uh, here's a quote from Dallas Willard. He's got a great, if you're looking for a book on apologetics, on, on uh, commending the faith, his, uh, there's a new book, The Allure of Gentleness, Defending the Faith in the Manner of Jesus. is a wonderful read. And Dallas says this, The method of validating a theory in biology doesn't work particularly well in astronomy. Method is always tied to subject matter. And in dealing with life in general, there is no such thing as a single scientific method. This has become the quandary of our culture because everything that really matters in guiding life falls outside of science. Right? So you can't do a double-blind clinical trial to test whether somebody loves you. It it would be a nice way to go. Should I marry someone or shouldn't I? Well, if I can just... uh, create an alternate universe where we don't get married and one where we do get married and we see what the outcomes are. That, you know, and then we choo- you can't, Life doesn't work like that in any area that really matters. So when it comes to God, if God is a person and a spiritual being, we have to say what is the method that we use to validate our claims about a relationship. So if I claim that you love me, How do I validate that? I enter more deeply into a relationship with you. You you can only validate relational claims by entering more deeply into the relationship. How do I know if someone accepts me? It's by moving towards them so that they have an opportunity to accept me. That's the only way you can test that claim. How can I test the, f- the claim that Margot has loved me for the last 27 years? Well, I have to go home and see if she's cooked dinner, you know. <laughs> I've got to go home and see. You know, I have to be in rela- There's The only way to test relational claims is deeply in relationship. And so actually it is with God that the only way ultimately to test the claims of faith in God is in a relationship with that God. Uh, If we can't use the strict scientific method, whatever that is, however we understand it, uh, another way to understand this or to make sense of life is to ask the question, uh, which hypothesis, which explanatory story, which way uh, makes most sense of most of the data? So this is fairly standard philosophy of science. It applies in all areas of life, and I think in the areas of the claims of faith as well. So when someone says, this is how the world works, or this is, you know, um, for example, uh, my hypothesis that Margot loves me, let's go with that because I find it quite a nice hypothesis to contemplate, Um, uh, I have to say, does that story make, is it comprehensive? That is, does it explain all the data? Um, there could be an alternate hypothesis. She's a psychopath who's just waiting for a moment to murder me in my sleep. And she's been doing this for 27 years, okay? So, but but the, my, my explanation, does it make sense of most of all the data? Is my hypothesis internally consistent or are there contradictions within the hypothesis? Is my hypothesis congruent with reality? That is, does it actually fit with the way the world works and finally, which I find very interesting, even in the sort of philosophy of science field now, is, is is this hypothesis compelling? Like, is it elegant? Is it beautiful? Does it just make sense? There's a there's a non-rational beauty or elegance or compellingness around. Uh, around s- hypotheses, around claims, that even the most radical scientists, like the even scientists who, who practice in those seriously hard disciplines, like particle physics, will get excited when they discover a particular way of understanding the relationship of subatomic particles. And suddenly all the maths work, and they oh, that's, that's oh, you, you've got to believe it. It's just true, right? So uh, when it comes to God... Our Christian faith, we have to ask ourselves, does the, does the claim that there is a God make uh, sense of more data than alternative explanations? Is it more internally consistent than other explanations? Is it congruent with the world as we find it? And is it compelling? Keller puts it this way, is the, the, the gospel story... Is so compelling that we would want it to be true, even if we didn't believe it to be so. Isn't that cool? Like it's it's that beautiful, right? Right. Um, So let's have a think about this. What exactly are the claims, the foundational claims of Christianity that Hebrews 11 makes? They're fairly basic. You might say, why are we spending so much time on these? Well, because if we don't, if we're not really deeply, profoundly existentially and intellectually convinced of these claims, we're in trouble. It's very hard to live a life of faith. So, so these are the big ones that we've got to grapple with. One, God exists. Okay? It's not a given. It's a claim. Is it true? And we claim, the book of Hebrews in verse 6 claims that God rewards those who seek him. How? He says, if you seek me, you will find me. That, that God is good, and he longs to be in a relationship with us. And, to get a little more philosophically uh, nuanced, God is an invisible spiritual personal being who created all of physical and material reality. Uh, and you could add another word in there, subsistent. He's an uncaused cause, uh, a great mind who is uh, eternally subsistent, uh, self-existent, self-contained, who creates everything. Now, let's have a think about how we test whether those are true. I told you this would be a bit like a philosophy lecture. Um, Two arguments. There are many others that can be advanced, but just for tonight I wanted to show you two that I find particularly helpful in the context of Hebrews and life. Uh, Is it reasonable to believe that God exists? Uh, And we can argue from the nature of existence itself, And we can argue from perceived design in the world. So the argument from existence, Tim Keller in his latest book on apologetics, Making Sense of God and Invitation to the Skeptical, he says it like this. Nothing cannot produce something. Everything must come from something that already has being. This means that there must be something unique that exists Without a cause, something that did not spring out of nothing, that is its own cause and the source of everything else. that one being is being that one being who is being itself is God. Again, because all natural beings have a cause, there must be some supernatural entity that exists without a cause from which all has come. Make sense? Let me put it another way. Uh, uh, Actually, I'll put it another way and then we'll go to Willard's quote. The the point is this. In our experience of the world, everything that we experience has a cause, doesn't it? Every material thing has a cause. There's nothing that you and I have ever encountered that wasn't caused by something else. Is that right? Now, you could say, well, well, one problem... you you could say that there is just an infinite regression of causes. So somehow everything has a cause, and that just goes on back to infinity. But that doesn't answer how existence came to be. You have an infinite regress. That doesn't answer the fundamental question. It just came to be. So the way this is answered, one way this is answered, is people say, well, we know that you can't have an infinite series of causes, right? So uh, if you imagine a, a chain of dominoes, and uh, this domino where we are now, a domino's fallen over. The only reason this domino will have fallen over is because one tapped it, and another one tapped it, and another one tapped it, and another one tapped it. and So that's our world, right? A bunch of dominoes falling over. An infinite chain of dominoes means, well, actually, it just always was, and there have always been dominoes falling over and that 's just but, but we know that that can 't be true because someone had to start the dominoes, like where did they come from? How did that infinite chain start? and so one answer is nothing they, they just it just appeared, something came out of nothing. The popular answer you might get from your friends is, well, the big bang. Uh, no scientist in writing in a peer-reviewed journal would argue that the Big Bang is a hypothesis that explains the origin of matter. So one view is really the, is is just nothing. Something came out of nothing. Now we've, that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. If there's if all we have is material reality, all we have is a series of dominoes. You've got to go, these dominoes just popped into being somewhere at some point in time and started falling over. The Christian hypothesis is different. The Christian claim is, at the, at the start of the series of dominoes, what do you have? You have something that is completely unlike any dominoes. You have a spiritual being, a non-material being, who because it is non-material doesn't need a cause but is a subsistent, personal, spiritual, non-material being who causes the dominoes to come into being and sets all the subsequent causes in place. Uh, Now, our experience of reality makes us think, makes me think at least, that this is more reasonable than than to assume that something came from nothing. Because how in our experience do we experience spirituality Spiritual or non-physical reality causing effects in physical in the physical world, material world. How do we see that working out? Can you think of examples of that in your own lived experience, when a non-material thing can cause material stuff to happen? Ethics, Ethics? yeah, which is another way of saying our minds. Now, there's an assumption in there that our minds can't be reduced just to the material. Uh, But our minds can actually cause stuff to happen. And so we can start to say, look, it makes sense. It makes more sense of the data. It's more elegant. It's more compelling. It's more consistent to assume there is a spiritual being who created the world to assume that just everything we have popped out of nothing. Uh, uh, Dallas Willard puts it this way, the bottom line in the discussion of creation is, do we live in a world that runs on its own? And he says, I believe that it is by far the most reasonable to believe in a personal being of unlimited power as the reason for the condition of the natural world. Uh, if you want to afterwards, Willard also has this great section where he talks about, uh, from Hebrews 1 and John 1, how God creates the world through his word, right? Um, and uh, how many of you know? Uh, here's here, how are we doing for time. Here's a very famous uh, little equation: E equals mc squared, energy equals matter times the speed of light squared. Right? So uh, normally, with this equation, how we use it, Willard says, and it's very clever. He says we read it from uh, right to left. So what we do is we try and create energy. We take matter and we, we get, uh, and we get two bits of matter to speed up at great, at great speed, collide against each other, and that releases enormous energy. What do we call that? A nuclear explosion, nuclear reactors. That's the principle. We move from matter and speed to energy. Ha! You can read the whole Bible as this. You can read the creation narratives as reading it from left to right. God is infinite personal spiritual energy who creates matter by his word. His spiritual energy, if he's a source of infinite, infinite energy, actually brings about matter. Um, and we und- and this, this equation can help us understand and see how that works. So it fits. Science can help us understand and validate um, the, the claims of Christianity. And it's compelling and it makes sense. There's a second argument, and that is the argument from design or fine-tuning, And uh, this is how Keller puts it. Uh, Recently, many Christian thinkers have pointed to the constants of physics. I don't know if you like physics, but the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of strong and weak nuclear forces must all have almost exactly the values they do have in order for organic life to exist. You can think of these all as as sets, a huge array of set of dials, all of which must be set to just where they are set. In terms of probability, the chances that all of the dials would be tuned to life permitting settings all at once are about 10 to the power of 100. Of all the possible arrangements of all the settings, you know, so you've got these trillions of possibilities, uh, there was only one in billions of trillions that could have produced life on this planet. So I, I find it so imminently reasonable to believe in the the Christian hypothesis and explanation of the world, because the alternative is, listen, something came from nothing, which we never encounter anywhere else. That's a magical view if ever there was one. That's a superstitious faith-based view. Something came from nothing. And the something that emerged out of pure chance... Absolute complete randomness. There's one in a gazillion, trillion, billion chance that this something that emerged just happened to be perfectly suited to you and I being here and living. And you go, huh? That's one alternative. The alternative is we say there is a God who is this infinite source of energy who spoke, and by his word, he created matter, and this matter was perfectly organized. So that people like you and I could live in this matter so that he could have a relationship with us. That's the alternate story. I know which story I think makes more sense. It's the one that God is at the center and uh, is the one who is in control of all things. Ultimately, non-belief in God is an act of faith because there is no way to prove that the world and all that is within it and its deep mathematical orderliness and matter itself all simply exist on their own as brute facts with no source outside themselves. If the theory that God exists leads us to accept what we find, leads us to expect what we find, whereas the belief that there is no God does not, why not move ahead at least tentatively by adopting the theory that God is there? just makes sense. It's so reasonable, isn't it? It's so obvious, so compelling, so beautiful. Now, that's the introduction. First point. It's a good thing it's a long weekend. We can be here for a long time, can't we? Second point. This is hopeful. This is hopeful, right? Because if, there is, if this is the way the world works... Death is not the end. Our lives are not empty and meaningless. That's that's why when you read Hebrews 11, all these people could do what they could do because of the hope that was ahead of them. So good old Abraham, he's living comfortably in Ur of the Chaldees and having a great old time, and God says, Abraham, come follow me. Where are we going, Lord? Don't worry about that. I'll tell you later. Off he goes. Moses... uh, Leaves the fleeting pleasures of sin <laughs> to follow God. I'm having such a good time in the, temp- as in, the, in the palace in Egypt. Go to the desert, Moses. Oh, no. Why? Don't worry. I'll tell you. It'll be okay. Okay, let's go. It's hopeful. Death is not the end. It's also powerful. What we believe about the world is a source, and our faith is a source of immense power. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, Hebrews 11 says that the power that these people had to live radical Christian lives came because of their faith, because they believed that this was the way the world worked. And guess what? For two th- we have 2,000 years of history to show the power of faith. The power of faith is what what moves followers of Jesus to do radical things, to give away their money for the poor, to stay in cities when the plague would come rushing through the city and all anyone who had any money and means would get out of the city and run to their country estates, and the Christians would stay and care for the people dying of the plague and then die themselves. That's the power of faith, to serve the power of faith that says Christians will overturn social structures, so transform slavery the transatlantic slave trade, the modern day slave trade, transform the role and the rights of women at extraordinary cost to themselves, transform the way uh, abortion and infanticide was practiced in the ancient world. We have 2,000 years that says, you know, it's the power to give away money. Right? We talked, Fiona was talking about that before, about our offertries here. Listen, um, even though we might go oh, off trees a little down, the data of 2,000 years is when people believe this explanation of the world and we really believe it, then and only then are we free to, to, to give away our money. Because if, if this world is all there is, why would I be generous? But if God is God, then money is a means to an end. And, I can, and, and the data is clear. Christians are far more generous than people who don't have faith. Uh, that's just true powerful. How do you resist sin? How do you resist the the fleeting temptations of sin and evil? Well, it's faith. It's a better vision of what your life is about. But it's also intensely personal, isn't it? Because here's my confusion. I find myself very confused a lot of the time. For me, uh, Christian faith, these claims are so obvious and compelling and so true i can 't understand why every it really perplexes me why everyone doesn't believe this like it's so obvious here's another thing that perplexes me. You may have noticed this about me um i 'm really quite a compelling and convincing arguer like i could I can sell anything to anyone really, and i 'm very convincing and i and 've got my head around these arguments I, i'm most people I talk to haven't thought as much and read as much about this sort of stuff as I have. So even this brilliant investment banker across the road, brilliant as she was, I've just read a whole lot more than she has. And, and I try to convince her, and even with all my rhetoric ability and my winsome boyish charm and my—I don't know why people don't—they still don't get it. I've discovered that I can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. I had a fair crack with my brother and my mum. You know, my brother ended up a Muslim, and you know. Mum came to faith through other people. You can't, you can't, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God, because faith is intensely personal, and it only comes about through a direct encounter with God. It's like a relationship. I can tell you, I can tell you how wonderful my friend is. I can exhort them. I can, I can exhort you to go and meet them and spend time with them. I can say, this is the best friend you've ever had. But in the end, you'll only really know that when you go and hang out with them. Now, my words might encourage you, but it's only when you have an encounter with them as your friend that you start to discover that actually, yeah, Mark was right. They're a pretty good friend. It's like that with God. That's oh, really annoying. <laughs> I'd like it. If I could argue people into the... Actually, I wouldn't really. It would be pretty bad. Because then it would all be up to us. But this is about God graciously opening himself and yourself and ourselves and our friends up to a relationship. Because that's what it's about in the end. So what we need to do is be able, first and foremost, for ourselves to say, my faith can bear the whole weight of my life. I believe this to be true enough to give my life away, to be sexually faithful and pure, to radically serve the poor, to embrace downward mobility, to not worry about other people, to not gossip, to forgive and seek reconciliation, to pursue racial reconciliation. Uh, You know, I I need to be able to, to, to build a life of that kind of service on my faith. And then as we do that, we have to be so prayerful that God would open up our friends and our loved ones and open up their hearts to to connect with them and touch their lives and draw them into a personal experience of God himself because that's the only thing that will do it. Let's pray for that now and uh, come to the Lord. Our great God... We ask you to uh, have mercy on us. Thank you for our uh, for the reasonableness of our faith. That this it does make so much sense, Lord. And I pray that in the days and weeks and months ahead, we will be a church where we we know this faith and its reasonableness, its rationality, and that gives us hope and power to live differently for you. And I want to pray for our friends and family. Oh, Jesus, those who don't know you, those who we care about, just move towards them tonight, Lord. Appear to them, if need be, in visions, in dreams. Work directly on their hearts so that they have such an encounter with you that they have to come to us and ask us to explain what on earth is going on and what are you doing in their lives. Oh, Lord, we long to see people in this city and in this world come to know you and experience all that we know of you. So so do this, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.